Okay, just a couple of announcements for you this morning. Reminder of Wednesday nights, we are now doing our separate women's and men's and young ladies and young men, and then the little kids still in the back doing their thing. So I uh, had a good night Wednesday night. Made a lot of great, a lot of progress, I think, in both both departments. So hopefully you'll join us for that. Wanted to let you know that Linda's heart catheterization went well. Did not really find any blockage, so they're probably going to be pursuing something more electrical uh, with her um, condition right now. But she does possibly need somebody to take her to a follow-up appointment this Thursday. Children are occupied and out of town and stuff, so uh, she had apparently talked to some other folks about that, so it may be covered, but if you're available to help take Linda to a follow-up appointment Thursday in Somersville, please let Jody know. If you don't care, contact Jody and communicate with her on that. Also, next Sunday, we'll be having our themed meal for the month of July, and our theme for this month is going to be like a taco salad slash Mexican theme, so I'm excited and on delay. Uh, If you will... Stand with me now for the reading of our scripture for this week. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Father, we need your Spirit's restraining power. We need your Spirit's reproving power. And we need your Spirit's teaching power to show us this morning who you are and what you have for us. And I do pray that you would convict us and draw us wherever we may be, to you. Father, if there is anyone who does not know you, that you would speak life. Holy Spirit, that you would give the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus. And that you would get the glory that you deserve as we leave this time together. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody in school or college or anything right now where you've got to cite your sources? Anybody? 
Yeah, so so there's this thing now in college, when I went back to college as a what they called a non-traditional student, which means you're an old guy and you shouldn't be here, but we'll let you learn anyway. Um, there's this new thing called Turn It In. Anybody know what Turn It In is? A couple of you? So what happens is you submit your paper, and if there's anything that is plagiarized and not cited, it picks it up as, hey, this was written in somebody else, somewhere else. Somebody else has already said what you're saying, and you didn't cite your sources. And it'll give you like a percentage, like your paper's 87% plagiarized. Which just, turn yourself in, guys, because you're done at that point. And so you've got to fix, you've got to cite the things that are quoted. Just, oh, I didn't quote that guy there, I should have cited that. And like, it's got to be super low for them to accept the paper. Like, and there's, there's a lot of words, and there's a lot of combinations of words out there. And so how am I supposed to know, you know, maybe I said something somebody else said. The, the, the point is this, the person who said it originally, the person who wrote it originally, is supposed to get the credit for it. And for you to claim it as your own, for you to claim it as original, for you to say, I wrote this, I said this, I did this, is not acceptable. Right? That brings us to today. And this is really, really weird, y'all. I'm going to be honest. This is this this kind of shocked me. What is going on here? But verse 4, verse 4, verse 4, verse 4. Let me read the verse and then we'll get started into the exposition. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Okay, so we start with a therefore. That's going to call us to look back at where we've been so far in the first two messages which made up all of chapter 1. We went through chapter 1 in two messages. If you'll remember those first three verses, we had that glorious introduction that trumpeted Jesus as the Son of God. The very imprint, the exact representation of the glory and the nature of God. And then the writer compared, almost really contrasted, Jesus with angels. Showing Jesus to be far superior to the messengers of God's chosen people. So, Jesus is God incarnate. He's the Son of God. He has a name that is far superior to any or even all of the angels. And if you'll remember, right at the beginning of the letter, the writer said this, Long ago... Maybe, I don't know what's happened here. Help me out back there. There it is. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So the big emphasis there is that in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So God has spoken fully and finally in and through Jesus in these last days, those last days that started in the time of Jesus. And since God has spoken, and Jesus is who He is, And since He is far superior to angels, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, we 
must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now let that sink in for a second, okay? We must pay, since those things are true, since Jesus is who He is, since Jesus did what He did, since He's far superior to any message God had sent prior, all the other messages God had sent prior were messages from God, but they were all leading up to Jesus. And therefore, since Jesus has come, since God has spoken through Jesus, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And what we have here, starting in verse 1, this is verses 1 through 4, we have our first warning passage, which we talked about in our introduction message to Hebrews. The writer is going to issue these warnings all through the book. And like we just said, this is the first one. And if you would remember, and if you, if you weren't here for it, let me, let me tell you what we said. In the introductory message to Hebrews, these warning passages, listen, 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 these warning passages are not here to scare you. Amen. And I have grown up my whole life, spent most of my adult Christian life, spent most of my teaching and preaching ministry using these passages to scare people. That's not what they're here for. The point of these warning passages is to turn our eyes upon Jesus as the answer to the problems that the warnings are addressing. So... Since God has spoken through Jesus, since Jesus is far greater than angels, who we saw were said to be agents who brought the very law of God, those angels were, since Jesus is superior to them, and since Jesus is who Jesus is, and God has made Jesus the perfect message, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Right? Ultimately, we must pay much, much closer attention to Jesus. That's the point here. And note what all is being said here. First of all, who's supposed to do this? We are. The writer is speaking to whom? To a primarily Jewish audience, Jews who had trusted in Jesus for their salvation and now are starting to experience the early stages of persecution for that change in lifestyle that they've brought about in their lives, that God has brought about in their lives and that they're participating in. Now, the writer is calling on them to associate with Him and for them to be together in this. We. And that also includes us because we are reading this letter too, right? God preserved it for us, put it in our Bible so that we might read it. We. We must. Whatever he's calling them to is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a must. They are going to have to do what he's talking about. And what is it that he's talking about? They, we, must pay much closer attention. Let's just park there for a second. So we're pretty early in this message that I'm speaking today, right? So I probably... Haven't lost many of you yet. It'll happen. I've seen you fall asleep. The bulk of you, I've seen you fall asleep. I get it, right? 
So most of you are still engaged. Now in 15 or 20 minutes from now, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, I may have to kind of smack the pulpit to get your attention. And yes, I do do that when I see people fall asleep. I'm not hiding that. That's not always the reason, but sometimes it is. Or I might come to a VIP, a very important point. And I might say something like, now listen. Or, don't miss this. Now why would I do that? Because I want you to perk up your ears and really engage what's being said. Well here, the writer of Hebrews is pounding the pulpit, so to speak. And he's engaging his readers in order to call them and him and us to attention. Much closer attention, to be precise. And what is he saying they should pay much closer attention to? To all the quality books and podcasts that are being put out at that time? To all the finely produced movies and TV shows that convey positive messages? I'm being silly, but I do want to emphasize this point. He is saying since God has spoken through the perfect life of His Son, and since God has expressed Himself perfectly by so doing, then it is imperative that the followers of Jesus pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The perfect word has been spoken. We would do well, all of us, to pay much closer attention to that, to Him. You say much closer attention than what? Than any attention that you've already paid. Than any attention that you are paying. Pay much closer attention today than you did yesterday. Pay much closer attention tomorrow than you do today. Pay much closer attention. Now that takes us back to the statement we've made a few times already and will make all through this book. There were messages making their way all through the lands of the people of the first century. The messages about Jesus... We're getting confused. The messages were getting diluted. Maybe he was just an angel. Maybe he was just crazy. Maybe he's still dead. I didn't see him alive. So the writer is saying, come back to what you have heard. Come back to the message of Jesus that you have heard. The message about Jesus that is better than other messages. And that's the whole thrust of what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Again, coming out of the first chapter, showing Jesus as glorious as He can show Him to be, there's a call to know Jesus and pay much closer attention to Him. Don't let the noise and the distractions of all that is being said, even the stuff about Jesus that's not true, don't let that drown out the true message, the pure doctrine, what we have heard, the apostolic teaching. Jesus wasn't an angel. He's far superior to angels. Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just some messenger from God carrying a message to help get you through the day. So what you have heard, the pure, true, apostolic teaching, which was and is the eyewitness testimony of all that Jesus had done and taught, that has to take center stage and be engaged in on purpose and listen and given all of your attention. The verb for pay attention here is a present tense active voice verb. That means you do it now. And it's always now, right? 
We have to always be paying attention to what we have heard. What God has said through His Son and through the apostolic teaching about Him. Why? And here's the trumpet blast. Here's the big, uh-oh, da-da-da, pay attention, pound the pulpit. Why do we have to pay much closer attention? Lest we drift away from it. Now that seems a little bit innocuous at a first glance, doesn't it? Oh, well, okay. But church, listen. Oh, the danger involved here. Oh, the seriousness of the implications of this. What does it mean to drift away from what we have heard? And what are the dangers involved? Well, first let's look at what it means. Just think for a second. Let your mind engage what it would look like for anything to drift away. Helium balloon. You take it outside for the kids to play with. This is going to end poorly. A hundred percent of the time. Now, if you want rid of it, this is the outcome you're looking for. They're playing with it and they let go of that string and oof. Daddy, get it! Daddy, get it! Daddy can't get that, bro. That, that dude's going to end up on top of Tam's Mountain somewhere. Raccoon's going to swallow it, kill it. I don't know what's going to happen. I've lived by a creek most of my life. So many times we would be playing some kind of game, some kind of ball in the backyard, and inevitably, inevitably, that ball would end up in the creek. And what would happen to it? It would drift away, carried by the current of the moving water. Sometimes we'd jump in and rescue the ball and the game we were playing with it. At other times, we just knew somebody in Amigo was going to get a new ball when our ball washed up on the bank right by their house. Crap. I love that Nerf football. I think of driftwood. You're familiar with that, right? What, what's, what's driftwood? Well, it's wood that's drifted. <laughs> drifted on the water by the action of winds, tides, or waves, and it just goes wherever the tide, the waves, the winds take it. How about a lazy river? That's a newer thing, right? It's like water parks and even hotels now have lazy rivers. And you get on one of those floats and what do you do? You just drift. And it just goes in a circle. How fun is that? What the world have we become? People take float trips on the river. They go from point A to point B. They get on this floaty thing again and they just drift. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. The picture is that you're not working. You're not fighting against the flow. You're just going with it. You are doing nothing. And you're being carried along. Well, in our passage today, there is a severe danger, listen, of drifting away from the message that has been proclaimed. Of being carried along away from it. As we do nothing but float. Floating on the tide that carries us away from what we have heard. And the writer is sounding a strong warning against letting this happen. There was in the first century, and there is in our time, a very 
imminent danger of drifting away from the true, clear, apostolic teaching, which is the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done in order to save His people and equip them to live in a way that best glorifies God. And don't miss that last clause. In a way that best glorifies God. And the most dangerous part of the danger is that it happens so subtly. Drifting. How much effort does it take to drift? Zero. How hard do you have to work to drift? You don't. And that's the danger, right? Donald Guthrie said this in his commentary. The writer is not thinking of a deliberate refusal to heed but of an almost helpless slipping away, literally to flow past like driftwood in a river, hence the words, lest we drift away. And that's the rub, right? That's not defiance or rebellion. It's just nothing. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that is our most common and most prominent danger. Isn't it? It was for the recipients of this letter slash message. David Stern points out in his Jewish New Testament commentary that, quote, the readers of this book are exhorted not less than five times to bestir themselves and not drift away through complacency, apathy, or neglect. And then he gives the examples here, which in the passage we'll read today, uh, chapter 3. 6 through 416, chapter 511 through 612, chapter 10, 19 through 39, and chapter 12, 1 through 1322, which is the end of the book. Oh, end of the book. So he's going to bring this up several times. Kent Yu says it this way That church's experience 2,000 years ago intersects our lives in this way. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. And as the metaphor suggests, it's not so much intentional. It's not so much intentional as from unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor, Christ, and begin to quietly drift away. There's no friction, no dramatic sense of departure, but when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind, even out of sight. And then he concludes the statement by saying this, the writer of Revelation uses different language, but refers to the same thing when he says, to the ostensibly healthy Ephesian church, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So listen, if I haven't communicated this well, this is a big deal. And I'm not trying to sell my message. It's a big deal in this book and it's a big deal in my Christian life and your Christian life. I don't think the vast majority of us as disciples of Jesus are rank rebels who desire to defy our Master on who He is and what He commands us to do. I do think, however, we are prone to inaction. We are prone to inattention. We are prone to laziness. I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. In a world where the current is always working against us. In a world where gravity is always pulling us down. Our efforts to push upstream or to resist the natural pull tend to just come to a dead halt. And so we drift. We can't not drift 
if we're not actively working against us against it that's a lot of knots can't not if we're not and the most common cause of drift according to our writer here is not paying close attention to what we have heard Let that sink in. It cannot be overstated. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Why? Well, let's start exploring that with verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, which we'll work through bit by bit. And here's where my... For... Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let's stop there, okay? Now this this is weighty. And we'll kind of take it clause by clause to make sure we don't miss any of the magnitude of it. So first, that first part up to the first comma. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Now we talked about this last week just a little bit about how the Jewish tradition and the pervasive thought pattern in Jewish life, religious life, was that angels were responsible in some way for relaying the law of God to the people of God. And that's what the writer is referencing here. We actually quoted this last week. The message declared by angels is the law that was given to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, and Don read about it this morning, when Moses received God's tablets with, uh, at the top of the mountain with a mountain on fire, thundering and earthquakes, lightning, all of that, great darkness. And that message, the writer said, was declared by angels. They were the messengers who carried the message. And again, the account in Exodus does not say that, But the writer of Hebrews, writing to his primarily Jewish audience, knows that this was accepted and trusted amongst the Jewish people. And that message, the message that those angels brought, that law, that word of God, he also says, that message proved to be reliable. Now that's an interesting way of putting that, I think. So the law of God proved to be reliable. Now what's that mean? Well, it held up. For over a millennia, The Jewish people live, breathe, and observe Torah, even if they didn't do it from faith sometimes. Some still do it today, right? And that's over 3,000 years now. And we know that the law was given by God for His people to live their lives by. And so many of the New Testament writers refer to the law as the Word and the commands of God. So it was reliable, to say the least. You can count on it being what God said, even if it was mediated by angels. Now watch this. This reliable law didn't just tell people what not to do. It also showed the consequences for not abiding by the commands given there. And next clause. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Now, you've got to really kind of engage this and follow his thinking. Because this might seem a little bit oddly placed if we don't know what came after it. So the writer is setting the stage of what could possibly happen if we neglect God's Word now. Okay, But in order to see how bad that could be, he refers back to the clear teaching in the Old Testament that showed the repercussions of not obeying the law that was given by God through angels to His people. In this reliable law, the writer says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. 
You can look all through the first five books of the Bible and see statements of, if you do this, then this will happen. We saw it as early as the Garden of Eden, right? After the creation of man, God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will die. If you do the wrong thing, the bad thing, the thing I'm commanding you not to do, something bad will happen. These are the consequences. And when you get into the civil laws in Exodus to Deuteronomy, we'll see things like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth and such. If you shed man's blood, your blood will be shed. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. You were punished and faced consequences in line with the act that you committed. That's how the law of God works. Now one interesting note here about this retribution. Guthrie again says, The word rendered retribution, Miss Thapadocia, I think she's in Hamilton, right? Dear Miss Thapadocia, that's something else. The word rendered retribution is peculiar to Hebrews. In Hebrews 10.35 and 11.26, it means reward. So think about that in light of what we're saying here. People get their just rewards for their transgressions and disobedience under the law of God. The wages of sin is death, right? The law proved reliable, and in that law... People got the just desserts of their wrongdoings. So now, the sentence finishes this way. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let's stop there. Hmm. So this is a common argument style used in the Bible. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If it's true of the lesser, how much more is it true of the greater? If the law mediated by angels had consequences, how bad will the consequences be if we neglect the salvation purchased by God's perfect Word? You see that? Jesus is greater than angels. The law was mediated by angels. Jesus is a better Word than the Word mediated by angels. The law saw to it that if you transgressed it, you got just retribution. So then, if we don't pay attention to Jesus as the perfect Word of God and we drift from that message and neglect the great salvation that He and it provides, how shall we escape just and dire consequences as a result? Now let that sink in. You're like, you're scaring me. Not the point. Stay with me. Warren Wiersbe says this. The admonition is written to believers. For the writer includes himself when he writes, we. The danger here, Wiersbe says, is that of neglecting our salvation. Please note, he says, that the author did not write rejecting but neglecting. He's not encouraging sinners to become Christians. Rather, he's encouraging Christians to pay attention to the great salvation they have received from the Lord. End of quote. So dig in here. In this warning passage, what's the goal of the writer? Again, it's not to scare his readers. 
It's not one of these Appalachian mamas, you better shape up and get your act together or you're going to get your butt busted kind of warning. Have you ever heard that? Amen. But that'll, that'll bring you to Jesus though, won't it? <laughs> so it's not that kind of a warning. It's a call rather to know what is at stake. And what did we say is the point of the warning passages instead of scaring people? To point them to Jesus as a result of being warned. It's a call to know what will be missed as a result of neglecting this great salvation. It's a warning to see the grave consequences of not keeping our eyes on Jesus. If you neglect, if you drift, you are going to suffer tremendous loss. The loss would be terrible. And you may not even know what you've lost. There's not much we could compare this to in order to grasp what's being said. Anybody familiar with Bitcoin? Yeah, I'm like, I know Bitcoin, yeah. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I know what it is. <laughs> Listen to this. And you know what? I didn't cite my source here. <laughs> it was on a website somewhere. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the first 5,050 bitcoins, 50-50, the first 5,050 bitcoins were bought in 2009 for a total of $5.02. 5,050 bitcoins for $5.02. That's a per bitcoin price of point oh 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 nine nine dollars uh, Less than, way less than one cent a piece. Okay. So in 2010... The price per Bitcoin got up to a whopping 40 cents per Bitcoin. Now that's a 404% increase. So now those 5,050 Bitcoins were worth $2,020. Now I don't know about you, but that's a nice return. Right? A 404% increase, $2,000. You made an investment of $5 and now it's $2,020. It would be smart to sell and bail, right? You just made $2,000 on $5. High five. Dinner's on me. Dinner's on you. Well, fast forward to November of 2021. Bitcoin reached its all-time high of, now get this, 68000 $789 per Bitcoin. Then, those original 5,050 Bitcoins would be worth, let me do my math, $347,384,450. What a loss if you had neglected or drifted away from Bitcoin back when it was a whopping... 40 cents per Bitcoin. To go from $0.00099 to $68,789 per Bitcoin. Are you ready for this? Let me give you the percentage increase. $350,893,338% no, increase. 
Yeah, I destroyed that number, sorry. <laughs> if you had walked away with your $2,015 gain back in 2010, you would have been happy, right? And 11 years later, you'd have been kicking yourself in the hind end and you would have been sick to your stomach because what could have been? I would guess your $2,000 would be long gone by then. I would guess. From 2010 to 2021. That $2,000 has been spent and digested and dropped in the loo somewhere. And what you didn't have, what you missed, is kind of unfathomable. That's about as close as I can get to communicating what the writer of Hebrews is warning against us here in verses 2 and 3. How shall we escape the consequences of neglecting this salvation and drifting away from it? What could have been? And the simple, clear answer is we won't escape the consequences. How shall we escape the consequences? We won't. It is impossible to escape the natural outcome and the loss that will come with it. Not of your salvation, mind you. This passage is not saying be careful lest you lose your salvation. And all through the book of Hebrews there are statements that make us go, oh man, that sounds like he's saying we better be careful or we're going to lose our salvation. It says that nowhere in Hebrews. It says that nowhere in the Bible. We sang about it all morning long, right? So this is not talking about losing your salvation. It's impossible to lose your salvation. If you could lose your salvation, you would. The good news is, you didn't save yourself. He saved you. And He will not lose one of whom the Father has given Him. So again, the writer's not trying to scare us by saying we can lose our, sal- our hallowed place in Christ. The writer's not saying we could lose our salvation. The Bible teaches that nowhere. Come back to the honor-shame culture mindset here that we mentioned back in the introductory, uh, introductory message. It's not shame on you for doing bad, but rather think of the honor that would be missed. The honor you would not get shown to the proper one who deserves it the interest he would receive. And listen, here's what I really wrestle with trying to communicate. It is far more undesired that God not get His glory than we could possibly understand. We don't fathom that the way we should. How much glory is Jesus supposed to get? All of it. How much glory do we fail to give Him? And how much glory do we fail to show Him if we neglect His salvation and drift from it? Again, I'm pretty sure we don't feel the weight of this. I'm afraid we resort to, oh, that's all? When we consider missing out on chances to glorify Jesus. We're much more afraid that we might lose something in this. That we won't escape being punished or losing something that's ours. 
We're much more afraid of that than saying, oh, well, we failed to glorify God. It's more upsetting to us to think about losing something of ours than it is to think about Jesus not getting some glory. And that makes this tough for us to grasp this. But it's true nonetheless. And we need the Spirit's help to grasp and change this. And we'll explore that more in application, so put a pin in it. But let's finish the passage today by looking at the end of verse 3 and then verse 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This message is the it through all that that was spoken and embodied by the Son of God Himself was entrusted to apostles after Jesus ascended into heaven. Actually entrusted to them and then He ascended. Those apostles transmitted the message faithfully, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. Pentecost happened. They were all filled with the Spirit. And this message that these apostles declared, which was faithful to the one their Lord had shared with them, that message that they shared was also attested to those who heard the apostles' message. The word attested means to make firm, to establish, to confirm or make sure. The Lord declared it, the apostles shared it, and it was established, confirmed, and made sure to those who heard it. That was part of what the Holy Spirit was doing. But that wasn't all. The writer of Hebrews says that God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now don't miss that. God bore witness. How again? By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now what does that mean? Listen, this is very important when we get into the thought of spiritual gifts and miracles and and this stuff that, that is flashy and draws people's attention. The purpose of signs, wonders, and miracles and these gifts that were distributed by God Himself, the purpose of them was to give validity to the message being preached by the apostles. And it was... Through the apostles. Look at Acts 5, 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the Thank you very much. Wow. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now is that normative? There are churches and groups out there that would say it is and that we should aspire to this. But what is this passage saying? Just stay in this passage. Who was doing the work? God was doing the work. Who was He doing it through? The apostles. Now listen, that's very important. That's very, very, very important because when we go back to Hebrews, the point of all of this was to give validity to the message they were sharing. It was God confirming, I approve. 
What they are saying is what I want you to hear. What God was not saying was, look at the miracles and try to do some yourself. You say, well, you just don't have enough faith, Jason. I guess I don't. Whatever that means. My faith is in the fact that God was speaking and He was attesting to the people who were hearing that original message with signs and wonders and gifts distributed by Him for His glory so that people would perk up and say, I hear what you're saying. Not I see what you're doing. God is saying, this is my message. Pay attention. Pay close, much closer attention to it when you see that I'm showing that it takes my miraculous work to attest to the validity of it. Similar things are said in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, in Acts 14 and Acts 19. God granted that miracles and signs would be done through the apostles to make sure people knew to pay attention to what they were saying. And again, it was God doing the work, bearing witness to the message and its truth and power. God, the Holy Spirit, distributed them according to His will. And again, it was to give credence to the message they were preaching so that those hearing it then and us hearing it now would know that God approved of what they taught and did. The message is so much more important than the miracles. The miracles verified the message, not vice versa. And so, the writer of Hebrews re-emphasizes the importance of what the readers had heard in the teaching, which came from the apostles, which ultimately detailed the life, ministry, and teaching of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, who had come that we might know who and what God truly is. And know that God is truly for us which is the greatest good and the highest honor any human being could ever hope to accomplish. And to fall short of that, listen, is to miss the very point of your existence. Both as a human born to woman and a human reborn as a saint of God, born of the same Holy Spirit who gave these gifts and worked to verify the wonders and joys of the life of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Give me the message. Miracles are fine. I don't need them. God's done done that. Can He do them now? Absolutely. God is not limited by anything except what God chooses to limit Himself by. Would I ever stand before you and say, you need to try harder to do better so that you might work some miracles? Heaven forbid or go to some school out in California so they can teach you how to be a miracle worker. It's blasphemy. Heresy of the first order. Come and listen to us. We'll teach you how to be a miracle worker. No thanks. Give me Jesus and the message about Him. He's better. So, we turn our attention to application from this passage. Well, let me give you your homework first. Your homework is Exodus chapter 20 through Exodus chapter 23. That's four big long chapters, y'all. And what I want you looking for in Exodus 20 to 23 
Again, chapter 20 through the end of chapter 23. Here's where the law is being given. Look for the law and the consequences for disobeying that law. There's a lot of them. You don't have to write them down unless you want to. You say, you don't tell me what to do. It's true. I don't, I don't tell you what to do. These are suggestions for your edification. That's your homework. I got three non-alliterated points. I tried for about five minutes and I stopped. So. Drift, consequences, and attention. DCA. Drift, consequences, attention. First application point is drift. We could also include in that neglect. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We cannot lose our salvation, but we sure can lose the effectiveness of being saved, can we? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And, and how do we drift away? Is it on like, what, what's, what's the highest class of rapid? Somebody shout that. Class five? Six. Six? Okay. It's finger of God, what they said in Twister. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we usually don't drift away on a class six rapid. We usually drift away on a lazy river. On a nice float we picked out for ourselves. With a nice drink in our hands. Covered in suntan lotion. Prepared for this drift. Right? I ain't going to do nothing but kick back and just drift away. Oh, give me the beat, boys, to save my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll. And drift away. No. May it never be. It's the slow death. The death by a million cuts, right? And listen, it takes no energy, it takes no effort to drift or neglect. None. And here's the main problem with this drift and this neglect. There are serious consequences that come from the neglect, that come from drifting away from the message that you have heard. And here's the problem, sometimes we don't see them. Most of the time, we don't see them. It's kind of like that meme of the dog sitting with the room on fire. This is fine. We don't notice that stuff's burning around us. We don't see the people going to hell around us because we're not witnessing to the greatness of the message that's been preached to us. We're not honoring and glorifying God in what we say, do, think, and feel, and eat, and drink. And therefore, people are missing seeing the glory of God in and through our lives. And there are serious consequences that come from that neglect and from that drifting. And I, I think we're quick to jump to and say, yeah, but there's grace, and there is. Praise God for grace that perfectly saves us for eternity. But when we neglect, when we drift, we will not, cannot escape the effects of neglecting and drifting in the here and now. The message of Hebrews is to believers. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We sang, Come Thou Fount, this morning. 
A guy named Robert Robinson wrote that. Wearsby quotes this in his commentary. The next time you sing, come, thou fount of every blessing, recall that the composer Robert Robinson was converted under the mighty preaching of George Whitfield, but that later he drifted from the Lord. He had been greatly used as a pastor, but neglect of spiritual things led him astray. In an attempt to find peace, he began to travel. During one of his journeys, he met a young woman who was evidently very spiritually minded. She said, What do you think of this hymn that I've been reading? She asked Robinson, handing him the book. It was his own hymn. He tried to avoid her question, but it was hopeless, for the Lord was speaking to him. Finally, he broke down and confessed who he was and how he had been living away from the Lord. And then the woman said this. I quote her. But... These streams of mercy are still flowing. And through her encouragement, Robinson was restored to fellowship with the Lord. There are dire consequences. In that time between him starting to drift and him showing up and talking to this young lady who brought his attention back to the message that he had heard, that he had proclaimed, there were consequences. In his life, and in the lives of those around him. He didn't see him. Maybe he looks back and goes, oh no. Maybe we look back and say, oh no. The command of Jesus is this, don't drift, stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Drifting people don't stay dressed for action. Drifting people don't keep their lamps burning, but we are commanded to. The danger of drift, the danger of neglect, the dire consequences that we don't see that I'm asking that God would open our eyes to. Now again, this passage is not talking about losing our salvation, but there's this to consider too. C.S. Lewis said, And as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity... I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned to have have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? So there is the danger of drifting. Second application point: consequences. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And I want to reiterate, this is not a God is mad at you passage. If you are a believer, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has no anger left to spend on you. He spent it all on your, in your, on your sins in the person of Christ on the cross. Justice has been satisfied. So this is not, the consequences are God's going to be upset with you. Jesus is crying. The consequences are we fail to image forth God. And that is tragic for us and for those around us. When others see us and not Jesus, when we are the center of attention instead of Him, the results are tragic. We just don't always see it. I didn't, I didn't cite the Bitcoin site that I got the information from. 
that's bad, right? That, those people aren't getting the, the credit for the work they did. I'm claiming that I did it. and just You don't need to know who that is. It's not important. And that's not a big deal, is it? Well, ask them. God not getting His glory is horrendous. It is cosmic treason. It is satanic. I will exalt myself above the Most High. Oh, come on, Jason. It's not that big a deal. It is that big a deal. It is that big of a deal. How much more glory could God get from your life than He's getting right now? What areas of your life are not imaging God forth at all? What, what parts of your life are you not even thinking about God at all? Much less imaging Him forth. Well, I got my church life, and I got my private life, and I got my work life, and I got... No. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He upholds everything by the word of His power. He is to get credit for that. What can I do but thank you? What can I do but give my life to you? Hallelujah. What can I do but praise you every day? Make everything I do a hallelujah. How many hallelujahs didn't you say yesterday? I don't mean with your words. How much of your life was not spent for the glory of God yesterday? What did you do that you couldn't say hallelujah about yesterday? What are you planning on doing today that puts you in danger of not being able to say, God, thank you for this. God, praise you for this. God, get glory in this. I'm going to go home, Lord willing, today, and I'm going to take a nap. And I, I'm going to thank God for the opportunity to rest. I'm going to thank God for the opportunity to have been here and spoken His Word and been with His people and expended myself. I hope I don't just go home and take a nap and wake up and say, that was a good nap. Or that was a cruddy nap. You ever had a cruddy nap? Me, I It is cosmic treason. It is horrendous. It is satanic for God to not get the glory for everything. In your head, your heart, your mouth, your hands, your feet. Where you go, what you do. God, show us the dire consequences of you not getting glory as we neglect. Such a great salvation. Bitcoin, right? Just a few hundred million dollars. But I made two grand. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. The end of the matter. All's been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now that either gives you great comfort or that makes you scared to death. I want it to bring you great comfort. Because everything you did was a hallelujah to Him. Glory be to God. So drift, consequences, and finally, a 
attention. What's the answer? We must pay much closer attention to the things we have heard. If you come across a scripture or a book of the Bible or something, you say, oh, I know that already. I'm familiar with that. I don't, I don't need to look at that again. Pay much closer attention to it. Oh, that's Leviticus. Pay much closer attention to it. Oh, that's the, just the Ten Commandments. Pay much closer attention to it. Oh, that's, that's the Gospel of John. I've read it a million times. Pay much closer attention to it. We must pay much closer attention to the things we have heard. Because if we don't, we are going to drift. And there are going to be dire consequences, even if we don't see them or feel them. Romans 12, 1-2 I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. I would add in there, do not drift from it, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, which is working, which is active in the power of God, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We ended our our meeting here with the fellas Wednesday evening. Our goal in our study with the guys on Wednesday nights, our goal here as a church, it was in Ephesians 5, that we may discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That every day, let everything I do be a hallelujah to Him. Listen, if it's not pleasing to Him, don't do it. If you can't say hallelujah while you're doing it, don't do it. Don't think it. Don't feel it. Don't eat it. Don't drink it. Or whatever you do. So that you may, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That you may discern what the will of the Lord is. What pleases Him. What is good and acceptable and perfect. I close with, I want to read this song. It's not long. Don't freak out. By Michael Card. Is not he who formed the ear worth the time it takes to hear? Should he who formed our lips for speaking be not heeded when he speaks? Will you not listen? Why won't you listen? God has spoken love to us. Why will you not listen? Listen to the sacred silence. Listen to the holy word. Listen as he speaks through living parables that must be heard. Will you not listen? Why won't you listen? God has spoken peace to us. Why will you not listen? He spoke a word of flesh and blood. Flesh and blood that bled and died. Bled and died just to be heard. How could you not hear this word? Why will you not hear this word? Will you not listen? Why won't you listen? God has spoken hope to us. How could you not listen? Why will you not listen? How could you not listen? Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would help us to pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard. Not my words, your word, your perfect word. Jesus Christ the righteous. The word who was with you in the beginning. Who was with you and who is God. God, help us to avoid drift. Help us to not neglect this great salvation that You have purchased for us and given to us as a free gift 
of your grace. And may we not be afraid of losing things we like. May we not be afraid of losing the things of the world, but may we be deeply adverse and and scared, God, of not giving You the glory that You deserve in our lives. And may that fear move us to a comfort in who You are and what You have done as we hear and see and believe again what we have heard as we pay much closer attention to it. Help us, please, God. We are prone to wonder. Take our hearts, Lord. Take and seal them. Seal them for your courts above. Bind them like a fetter around us that would keep us close to you. And may everything we do today and every day and all through eternity be a hallelujah to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay in with us if you can.